0: Welcome to On the Souls Terms, a podcast mining the rich soils of ancient stories in search of forgotten gold and conversing with those on the edges of the known and unknown in the world of the healing arts. I'm your host, Chris Skidmore. Hello, and welcome to On the Souls Terms podcast. I'm your host, Chris Skidmore. Thanks for joining me today. I'm excited today to bring you the story of Psyche and Eros. It's a story that pops up in the 2nd century A.D. by an author named Apuleius. Uh, And Apuleius wrote this long, winding novel called The Golden Ass, otherwise known as Metamorphoses. And in this story, uh, every now and again, there would be a, a sort of a dream sequence that would happen. And this is one of those dream sequences that uh, is told by an old crone to a young maiden to help her feel calm and relaxed. She tells her the story of Psyche and Eros. Um, And so it is quite dreamlike. It's a bit of a non sequitur in the novel itself. Um, It's a bit of a wandering off into another direction. And so, as you can hear, it's perfectly suited for today, which is the new moon in Pisces. Um, And in fact, two of the characters in the story are Venus, a.k.a. Aphrodite, and Eros, a.k.a. Cupid. And in the constellation of Pisces, it's those two that are the two fish. So people may be familiar with the two fish attached by an umbilical cord, and it happens to be those two who have metamorphosized themselves into fish in that particular myth. As such, it's one of those rare moments when we get a blend of fairy tale like story and myth. It's a bit of a blend in between, and it makes it kind of perfect for this podcast. Now, I foolishly thought that I could do this in just one podcast, but it turns out that it's a very long story, and it's a juicy one, and so much to explore, so I've actually separated it out into two, and so this is part one. We will go through the first half of the story and uh, wax lyrical about what happens. And part two will be coming soon. It's a story that is well-celebrated amongst Jungians. Um, in the Jungian tradition, this, this story goes very deep. In fact, I think it was James Hillman that, uh, that suggested that the origin myth of psychology should have been psyche and eros rather than Oedipus, as Freud adopted back in the day. So it's that it's that potent of a story, and sometimes with stories like that, they can get drawn into a particular world, and a lot gets made of them in that particular setting. So what I want to do today is just to really celebrate this Pisces new moon and allow ourselves. That's me and all of you guys that are coming along with me into the journey to really open up the dreaming mind. In fact, that's what the sign of Pisces is all about. Is the, It's the 12th sign of Zodiac. It's a water sign. It's a mutable sign. Um, it allows us to re-enter the dreaming spaces to sort of go to the oceanic consciousness To drift and dream, in my mind, it rules over poetry, mythology, art. It rules over plays, stories, um, anything that can take you from this everyday world and into a fantasy world or a dreaming world. That doesn't mean the fantasy world or the dreaming world is less real or less true than this world. It's just a different dimension, a different frame in which we can view reality, really. It's my honor today to take you guys through this story. Uh, but before I get into the story, I'd love to read a, a poem. It's a poem from 1819 by John Keats, and it's called Ode to Psyche. O oh goddess, hear these tuneless numbers rung by sweet enforcement and remembrance, dear, and pardon that thy secrets should be sung even into thine own soft conched ear. Surely I dreamt today, or did I see the winged psyche with awakened eyes? I wandered in a forest thoughtlessly, and on the sudden fainting with surprise, saw two fair creatures couched side by side in deepest grass beneath the whispering roof, of leaves and trembled blossoms where there ran a brooklet scarce espied mid-hushed, cool-rooted flowers, fragrant-eyed, blue, silver-white, and buttered Tyrian. They lay calm, breathing on the bedded grass, their arms embraced, and their pinions too. Their lips touch not, but add not bated dew. As if disjointed by soft-handed slumber and ready, still-past kisses to outnumber, at tender eye dawn of aurorian love, the winged boy I knew. But who wast thou, O happy, happy dove, his psyche true? O latest born and loveliest vision far of all Olympus's faded hierarchy, fairer than Phoebe's sapphire region star, or Vesper, m- morris glow-worm of the sky, fairer than these, though temple thou hast none, nor altar heat with flowers, nor virgin choir to make delicious moan upon the midnight hours. No voice, no lute, no pipe, no incense sweet from chain-swung scents teeming. No shrine, no grove, no oracle, no heat of pale-mouthed prophet dreaming. O brightest, though too late for antique vows, too too late for the fond-believing lyre. When holy were the haunted forest boughs, Holy the air, the water, and the fire. Yet even in these days so far retired from happy pieties, thy lucent fans, fluttering among the faint Olympians. I see and sing by my own eyes inspired. So let me be thy choir, and make a moan upon the midnight hours. Thy voice, thy lute, thy pipe, thy incense sweet, from swinged scents of teeming, thy shrine, thy grove, thy oracle, thy heat of pale-mouthed prophet dreaming. Yes, I will be thy priest, and build a fane in some untrodden region of my mind, where branched thoughts new-grown with pleasant pain instead of pines shall murmur in the wind. Far, far around shall those dark-clustered trees fledge the wild-ridge mountains steep by steep, and there by zephyrs, streams and birds and bees The moss-lane dryads shall be lulled to sleep. And in the midst of this wide quietness a rosy sanctuary will I dress with the wreathed trellis of a working brain, with buds and bells and stars without a name, with all the gardener fancy ever could feign who breeding flowers will never breed the same. And there shall be for thee all soft delight that shadowy thought can win a bright torch and a casement open night, to let the warm love in. So there's Keats really paying homage to Psyche. The way he's seeing it there is that she's the newest goddess, the newest, the most freshly crowned of the goddesses. And her story, it's a story that was written in the second century AD. And so Keats is, is going back here, to a time just before the um, monotheistic tradition of Christianity really took over the Western imagination. Um, You know, just at this moment, we have Psyche. Um, She makes her way, as you'll hear in the story, from from being mortal to slowly going through trials, tribulations, tasks, all sorts of things happen to her. She gets the wrath and the envy of, a, of the famous goddess Venus. And she ends up ascending and finding her way amongst the pantheon. And so Keats is, is really bringing our attention to this newest of the goddesses that came in just when the entire Olympian pantheon was about to crumble and become kind of like the stories that we know it as today, studied in classics or studied in literature but not really celebrated in in the same way as it was all those hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years ago. It's a beautiful way that Keats approaches it. Remember, this is some 80 years before Freud would come along and actually use Psyche as the name for the mind. Keats is is already seeing that, that it's Psyche that he can make a temple to, in his own mind, given that the Olympians are so far away now from the collective imagination. So I thought I'd introduce that first. and Now we can look into a little bit of a background for the story uh, by getting a sense of who the characters are that we'll be talking about today. Firstly, of course, is Psyche. Now, we all recognize the name Psyche, but as far as I can see, as far as I can tell, Psyche has no mention until this story. She, the word, was already there. Psyche in Greek means a few different things. One is breath of life. Uh, Psyche means soul, and Psyche also means butterfly. So it's a it was long a, a poetic way of of referencing the soul, but it had never been incarnated. In fact, it's really interesting because the because Psyche gets incarnated into this story, and then shortly after, it's announced that the great god Pan is dead, and so we get this sense of um, just as Psyche is being incarnated, maybe it's maybe Psyche is the incarnation of the age of Pisces, as I talked about with Tara Judell in our last podcast. We talked about this age of Pisces thing, and maybe Psyche was trying to be born uh, into this age where there was a male deity of Christ being born and a female deity of Psyche being born. Uh, But that obviously, as we know, a few thousand years later, didn't exactly work out as uh, perhaps was dreamed. So yeah, the word Psyche, breath of life, soul, butterfly, this is the first time that we see Psyche in as a form or formed. Of course, it would be a few, almost a few thousand years later, Freud would take the term psyche and use it as his sense of the the holistic consciousness that included the id, the ego, and the superego. So it was a holistic sense of the entire complex of the mind. Nowadays we tend to think of it as just the mind. I think you know it's the the psyche, and so we have psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and psychology, psychiatry. We can call people a psycho, and people can go into psychosis. So obviously the word caught on like wildfire and uh, was applied from that late 19th century when uh, when Freud first coined it. It's been applied an astonishing amount of times and an astonishing amount of ways. So that is our word, psyche, becomes what we know it today. Uh, but it it originates back with the Greeks, and it takes form in this story of the golden ass, of Apuleius. So the next big character, obviously the big characters that are in the title, is Eros. be interesting before I go into Eros just to think about this word, Eros, and what it means to you today. What does Eros mean? What does the erotic mean to you today? It's probably a word that has been, I would say, cheapened a little. From its from its origins, but the very first time that we see it, I, I believe it's the first time at least written down is in, in is Hesiod, when he talks about uh, this is something the last two solo podcasts have gone into. He talks about uh, the five primordial beings, one of them being Earth, Gaia, and another one being Eros. Yeah. So while all of these primordial forces are are being born. Eros is obviously one of them, and I say obviously because the rest of them can't be born without Eros being born. Eros is what glues it all together. Eros is what makes everybody curious about everybody else. You know, uh, Gaia, the Earth, does, does create by herself, but eventually she also creates a mate in Uranus, and then Uranus and Gaia start to create, and then everybody starts to you know eros is sort of that form that comes in between in order to create in the first place so that's eros's first incarnation is just as this this form this uh this energy doesn't really have a personification of any any type at this time and so later we get the birth of aphrodite and then there's this this section when all the gods and goddesses are born and then um Aphrodite has Eros as her son. Now he so this is the winged god who's generally in the Greeks uh in the Greek times we we sense him as kind of like an Adonis kind of a figure um where you get this beautiful god the son of Aphrodite he has wings and he has arrows and he goes about uh firing those arrows off left right and center and causing all sorts of mischief. Which is why we have, he has three different fathers. Um, so by three different fathers, I mean, there's different versions saying that he's, you know, giving different parentage. You'll see this a lot in Greek mythology. And at first you know, at first glance, the, the modern mind is like, well, you can't have that. You know, this is obviously nonsense if he doesn't have just one set, set of parents. But actually it just shows you these different, different sides and different glimpses of these particular gods many of these gods and goddesses have different parents to show you different sides of them so the three parents of Eros are Eres, who is Mars so that's like the Mars and Venus combination Um, so he's the god of war this is like war and peace getting together and making Eros or Zeus is another one so Zeus kind of like the god of gods Jupiter in the roman or hermes which brings in a little bit of these more tricks aside and i can you know i think in the modern day because eros later became known as cupid we can definitely see some hermes in that um some mercurial qualities to that to that incarnation when he becomes cupid in fact you know last week we just had valentine's day which is a cele- celebration in a way of, of cupid and you'll see cupid and his baby form flying around with his bow and arrows and and just being a little trickster and getting into people's hearts so that's him as as cupid but you can see that that this evolution of this word i mean it it's um it's one of those words that truly is archetypal it'll never go away um, but it'll also evolve and fit different times and different ages and i guess that's what makes eros itself quite piscean in that it in that it fits in wherever whatever the culture is doing it just kind of like morphs and merges with the culture Um, and we can feel that of aphrodite as well whatever the culture's up to aphrodite will merge which is perhaps you know a nod to the fact that aphrodite and eros are those two fish morphing into the sea so the third. Big character in this story is is Aphrodite herself. Venus, Aphrodite is the same thing, but the Greeks had her as Aphrodite, and the Romans had her as Venus. To me, it's a very different sound. It's a very different feel. You know, Aphrodite still maintains the the primordial oceanness of uh, of Venus. I think because the word um, Aphros is the foam so born out of the foam of the sea venus feels a little shorter a little bit harder a little bit perhaps easier to define aphrodite just feels more powerful and more herself than venus and i think you see a little bit about that in the story as well and so those are our main characters for at least this first part of the podcast um the second part will pick up a few more characters but just for simplicity's sake we'll we'll stick with those three We have Psyche, name means soul, butterfly, breath of life, Eros, basically the name means love, and finally Venus, whose name links back to Aphrodite, but ultimately is the image of of beauty, of harmony, of the arts, of, of connection and connectedness, and also, like her son, connected to love. Okay, so... Now we're going to move into the story itself and the telling of this story is um partly from the text itself from Apuleius and partly my own my own take and my own interpretation. And this is the beauty of of characters like Psyche, Eros, Aphrodite, they invite the subjective channel. They invite you the listener and me the speaker to really embrace the more subjective and the less objective components of reality. So here's the story. Part 1. Once upon a time, a king and queen had three daughters, all of them beautiful, but the youngest, Psyche, was the most beautiful of all. Psyche was so beautiful that citizens and strangers were inwardly pricked and came by the thousands to her father's palace to pay her tribute. They were astonished with admiration of her incomparable beauty. And soon news spread far and wide of this delightful being, Psyche. And so people started to make journeys. They started to come on pilgrimages just to behold the beauty of Psyche. People were so enthusiastic that they began to call her the new Venus. And as such, the beautiful virgin Psyche was worshipped by so many that the temples of Venus became neglected. As Apuleius tells us, her ornaments thrown out, her temples defaced, her pillows and cushions torn, her ceremonies neglected, her images and statues uncrowned, her altars unswept and foul with the ashes of old burnt sacrifice. Now, one can imagine that Venus was not so happy with this. I mean, how could it be that she, the one chosen by Paris, is the most beautiful of all the goddesses, the one that defeated Hera, that defeated Athena, and was chosen fairly, just in brackets there wasn't entirely fair, but chosen nonetheless as the most beautiful of all the goddesses, is now replaced by none other than a mortal. She was livid, to hear about this. And so she called on her son Eros to go down to the earthly plane and make Psyche fall in love with the most miserable creature living, the most vile, that there could be none found in all the world of like wretchedness. And so having sent Eros off to do this dastardly task, Venus left off to the sea and called called upon the daughters of Nereus singing their sweet oceanic melodies, and Palamon, the driver of the dolphins and the trumpeter of Triton, leaping here and there and blowing heavenly noise. And now, if you're looking for a Venus in Pisces image, look no further than that one. So that is our first part of the story. And we can hear in this story just how much of a fairy tale we're really dealing with here. And that's why this story is so celebrated, I believe, because it's it's mixing the mythological figures with classical fairy tale motifs, including having these three daughters, all of them beautiful, but the youngest, the Psyche, the most beautiful of all. We hear an echoing in that of the story of Cinderella. We hear an echoing obviously also of sleeping beauty and snow white this is where venus of of this tale is a little different than aphrodite i don't think aphrodite would ever be thought to be jealous really in the sense that she has no need to be jealous she knows she's very self assured she understands herself as the most beautiful of all but suddenly she feels the need to prove herself as the most beautiful but i guess If we were in her shoes and our temples started being neglected, well, we'd probably be the same, wouldn't we? So back to our story. So while Psyche was admired and praised by all, no one really wanted to woo her or really get to know her, uh, really even speak to her. People tended to see her more like a picture to be held, but not to be interacted with. And while her two older sisters had no trouble being royally married to two kings, Psyche was left alone and she lamented her solitary life. As Apuleius says, although she pleased all the world, yet hated she in herself her own beauty. So the father, not really knowing what to do about this circumstance, did what anyone would do in this world, and that is to seek the counsel of Apollo's oracle. So he went and he made prayers and sacrifices and asked the oracle of Apollo what he should do. His desiring a husband for his daughter. And then Apollo's oracle responded in this way. Let Psyche's corpse be clad in mourning weed and set on rock of yonder hill aloft. Her husband is no white of human seed, but serpent dire and fierce as might be thought who flies with wings above in starry skies and doth sub- subdue each thing with fiery flight, the gods themselves and powers that seem so wise, with mighty Jove be subjected to his might, the river's black and deadly floods of pain and darkness eked, as thrall to him remain. Often times the king had been to the oracle and come back with happy news, But this time the oracle had given him this news that Psyche was to be wed to none other than a serpent, to some kind of dark beast. And it wasn't good news at all, and he came back very much distraught. And so the king and the queen, they prepared their daughter not for her marriage, but for her final end and burial. So the wedding songs turned from their joyous celebration into howling and lamenting the death of Psyche. And Psyche in that moment turned to her parents and, and she said to them, why torment yourself now? Why trouble your spirits? Why soil your faces with tears? Why knock your breasts for me? Now you see the reward of my excellent beauty. Now, now you perceive, but too late, the plague of envy. When the people did honor me and call me new Venus, then you should have wept. Then you should have sorrowed as though I had been dead. For now I see and perceive that I come to this misery by the only name of Venus. Bring me, as fortune has appointed, and place me on the top of the rock. I greatly desire to enter my marriage. I greatly covet to see my husband. Why do I delay? Why should I refuse him that is appointed to destroy all the world? And so they left Psyche there, dressed all in black, And she stayed until the sounds of the villages started to get quieter and quieter as they went all the way back home. And so we see that Psyche has this terrible fate, that the beauty that she was given, it's not much of a blessing at all. In fact, it's drawn upon her the envy of the goddesses or the goddess Aphrodite and got her into a terrible, terrible situation. So we can see here some elements, we can see this is where that ancient story, Beauty and the Beast, you know, it's been uh, remade by Disney in the 20th century. Reasonably well done, actually, considering uh, other jobs that were done throughout the years. But it's a story that obviously links back thousands of years, it links well and truly back before Apuleius brings it to our attention here. The innocent maiden, the virgin being being somehow courted with this beastly figure. It's definitely a an archetypal pairing here, innocence and violence, and one that we can do much deep diving on, and I'll let you guys dream into that image and see where it might take you. But let's get back to our story. So from the top of this cliff, she was taken by the Zephyrus, the gentle breeze, taken down, 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 and laid into a deep valley where she was put down on a bed of sweet, flowers and there she slept it had been quite an ordeal and she slept for a while and when she awoke she felt refreshed actually kind of excited where was she what's going on here she's off now on an adventure uh, where it seemed as though she was going to meet her death she's in fact found her way out into quite an adventure she's had a really good sleep she feels really good and then she she sees ahead of her This incredible palace. I mean, we're talking pillars of ivory, gold all around. Inside the walls were covered and sealed with silver. And there were engravings of all sorts of wild beasts. And it was artwork so fine that it seemed like the work of a demigod or perhaps even God himself. And the floor was made of precious stones. It was like every part, every angle of the house was perfect. It was so well adorned that it glittered in night as though it was glittering from the sun. And as she entered, she saw riches in all of the rooms with no locks to keep them away from her. And then an invisible voice came in and told her that this is all at her command. Any desire she should have will be met immediately. Whatever bath she would like to be prepared in her chamber will be made. And meanwhile, royal meats and dainty dishes will be be prepared for her according to her desire. Whatever she wants, she shall have. And so Psyche took a bath and then came out into the hallway and sat down. And wine and meats were suddenly laid down by invisible hands. And then her favorite thing happened. An orchestra, an invisible orchestra, played for her a sweet melody and sang in perfect harmony. And so she sat back and she enjoyed this and really felt herself, all of her senses really tingling, starting to come alive. But then night fell and when she went to bed, she began to fear what might be to come. But then her husband came and, in the words of Apuleius, made a perfect consummation of the marriage. And in the morning before day he departed. In the morning invisible servants came and gave her nourishment and warmth following her defloration. And as time went by, she took great pleasure in all the elements of the castle, but especially the sweet sounds of the instruments that were a comfort to her being alone during the days. And so psyche has gone from what we thought was a terrifying situation, basically the end of her life, or perhaps even worse, being married to some kind of hideous creature. In the end, we haven't seen this at all. I would say, if you think astrologically, it's kind of the perfect combination of second house, eighth house, otherwise known as Taurus on the one hand and Scorpio on the other. Her Taurian side gets to enjoy all of the uh, deliciousness of life. Um, She gets to have the delicious foods and the, the ideal... Baths, and especially this sound and something that the Greeks came back to again and again of music being the highest of all of the arts um, and this, this beautiful harmony is coming in all day, all day so she's enjoying just the pleasures of being alive over there and then at night time she enjoys the, in the darkness she enjoys the, the sensuality, the sexuality Uh, and she's enjoying that invisible world. She truly is in what we might call a a complete fantasy here, in the sense that it has everything one might ever want um, all laid out for her. So we get the sense that, given that this is a fairy tale, and given that this is a myth, this is unlikely to last. So we'll go into the next phase of the story here. So meanwhile, in, I guess we would call it the upper world, back in her village, Psyche's parents, they continued to weep and lament the loss of their daughter. Her two sisters came from their kingdoms to comfort their parents. But the following night, Psyche's husband spoke to her of some kind of an imminent danger. He told her that tomorrow her sisters, thinking that she is dead, will be coming up the mountain steps. And if she hears them wailing, she must make sure to not answer them to not look up towards them, for that would bring him great sorrow and to her utter destruction. And Psyche, hearing her husband, totally got it. She was like, yes, I hear you, husband. And she was happy to do as he said. And so the next day, Psyche did hear her sisters and their wailing and their lamentations. But hearing them crying and hearing them wail, it just put her off the whole scene. You know she couldn't she couldn't live in that with that grief and the deep pain of her sisters and still partake in all the pleasures of the castle she found that to be impossible, so that night she went to bed distressed and without any food and without any bath, and just went into her husband's chambers and her husband, seeing her distress and not being able to console her, gave her the blessing as he said to purchase her own destruction he told her that it was fine to speak with her sisters and even give them the golds and give them gold and jewels but if they advised her to, to see him to take a peek at him it would bring everything to a halt you see the way this worked in the marriage of psyche and eros is that she was not allowed to see his form at all everything that happened at night happened under the cover of complete darkness. So the next day the sisters went back to the mountain and they were calling Psyche's name, screaming and lamenting, crying, wailing, to which Psyche called to them, sending the Zephyr to fetch them. And they came down and they landed safely down in the valley amongst all of the soft flowers. And there was a tearful, joyful reunion. And so Psyche began to walk them into the house, even showed them the storehouse of riches, She ran them a few baths and gave gave them the endless sweet meats and delicacies. But this, as it happened, sent an envy into the hearts of the sisters like a black ink. And one of them asked Psyche who her husband was, of what estate?" Psyche remembered in that moment the promise to her husband, and so she made up a lie that her husband was a young man with a flaxen beard who had great delight in hunting in the dales and hills nearby. And then, mostly to stop herself from giving too many more details, she filled their laps with gold and riches and sent them on their way via the Zephyr. Now, this sparked a deep jealousy within the sisters, complaining of their own husbands who had the gout and had stony fingers, both of them older than their own fathers, and cursing their lot in life while their sisters, lived the high life, wed to a god. They couldn't believe it. And so... From that moment, they began their scheme to get their revenge, not letting anything onto their parents. So we see here the morphing of the sisters. They now become much more like Cinderella's evil stepsisters. They have the jealousy, they have the envy. And Eros, knowing this would happen, had no real way to prevent it from happening. And so back into our story, we find that Psyche is in fact pregnant. She finds out she's pregnant to Eros and, and slowly begins to grow. And she starts to think that, you know, even though she can't see her husband, she'll be able to eventually make out her husband in the in the shape and the features of, of her son. And so as time went by, Eros spoke to his wife and said, Listen, these sisters of yours, they're plotting so that you will want to see my face. They're plotting for this. And now that they've been down here an evil has overtaken their hearts, I can feel it. They've set up their camps and they're they're ready to strike. I urge you to beware. I urge you to beware of your sisters. You just don't know what kind of evil they're capable of. Psyche responded that, you know, she doesn't get to see her husband's face, but she would love to see her sisters again, and they're really fine. There's nothing there's nothing wrong, there's nothing to be afraid of. And so Eros had nothing that he could do about it. And so again, the sisters came for a second time, taken by the Zephyr down. And they saw that Psyche was pregnant and they pretended to be very overjoyed and and excited for her that that this is what was going to come to pass and that she would be a comfort into all the house and what a treasure, what a a beauty this one will be. And they even said that there is no doubt but a, a new Eros shall be born. And so slowly by slowly, they were winning Psyche's trust. And then they asked her one more time to know who her husband was. Who is this man? And Psyche, a little bit flustered, remembering that she was supposed to not speak of him at all, invented a new answer and said that her husband was of a great province, a merchant, a man of middle age, having his beard interspersed with gray hairs. And when she had finished... Because she didn't want to talk anymore, she filled their laps with gold and silver and got the Zephyrus to bear them on their way. But when the sisters landed, they turned to each other and said, Did you hear this obvious lie of Psyche? The man that she told us before was of flourishing ears and had a flaxen beard, and now she says that it's half grey with age. How can somebody in such a short space of time become so old? you'll find that either this cursed queen has invented a great lie or else she never saw the shape of her husband. And if it is true that she never saw the shape of him, then she is definitely married to some kind of a god and has a young god in her belly. And be that the case, let's go back to Psyche and with some new forged lies. And so again, for a third time, they return back to Psyche, but this time they strain their eyelids and pretended to be very distraught with fear and panic and grief, and they said to her that the oracle of Apollo was true, and then they figured it all out, and that who she's wed to is in fact, obviously, a serpent. In fact, they've been doing a little bit of research, and many around in the village affirm that they saw him yesterday running from pastures and swimming over the rivers, this serpent, and that they undoubtedly say that he would not pamper thee along with delicate meats, but he's just fattening her up and he's gonna eat her and her child. And so we only care for your safety, we only care for you, we need to protect you from this serpent. You're our sister after all. And Psyche was so open and so trusting that she didn't suspect a thing. And her mind was completely amazed with this information and she completely forgot everything that her husband had said and her own promises that were made and threw herself into an extreme misery and said to her sisters, Oh, my sisters, I thank you for your great kindness towards me, and I'm now very much persuaded that you've informed me the truth. Because I've never seen my husband, and I don't know where he's come from. I only hear his voice in the night. And as as I do have an uncertain husband, and one that does clearly not love the light of day, that causes me to suspect that he is actually a beast, as you say. I do greatly fear to see him, for he's a menace and a great evil unto me. And so I should go and try to see him and, and behold his shape. And if you have any advice for me, then, then please just, just let me know now. And this is all that those sisters needed. And then they just really egged her forward and, and gave her an entire plan that they already had made up. And they told her that what she needs to do is to take an oil lamp and a sharp razor. And when he is already asleep after the day, that she should go and take this hidden lamp and razor and she should see. And when she sees the head of the serpent, just strike it straight off and she'll be safe. When Psyche was left alone, except that she wasn't really alone because of the furies in her mind, her mind was tossing like the waves of the sea. And although her will was set and she knew what she had to do, her mind was bouncing back and forth and she was doubtful, doubtful of of whether she should go through with it. Sometimes she would, sometimes she wouldn't. Sometimes she's bold and sometimes she's fearful. Sometimes she's mistrusting and sometimes she's moved. Sometimes she hates the beast and sometimes she loved her husband. And when the night came and her husband was fast asleep, she arrived with the lamp and the razor to see his true form. And as she got closer, what was revealed was no serpent, no beast, but Eros, Eros. Cupid, Amor himself, and she saw his arrows, and she picked them up to look at them and to feel them, and she accidentally pricked herself with the arrows, which added love on top of love, and then she climbed on him and kissed him and kissed him wildly, but in the process, she knocked the oil lamp, and a little bit of the oil landed on his shoulder, at which point it woke Eros up, and he stood up, shocked, and began to curse her. And he flew up to the top of a cypress tree, and he said to her, Psyche, consider that I, little regarding the commandment of my mother who told me that you should be married to a man of base and miserable conditions, did come from my, myself from heaven to love thee, and wounded by my own body with proper weapons, have thee as my spouse. And did I seem like a beast to you, that you should go about to cut off my head with a razor, who love thee so well? Did I not tell you to beware of your sisters, those cursed counsellors? As for you, you shall be sufficiently punished by my absence. And when he had spoken these words, he took his flight into the air, and Psyche fell flat on the ground, and the entire castle crumbled around her. And that's where we're going to leave the story for part one. And just looking back... Uh, at what we've seen so far, we can see the richness of symbol and imagery. You can sort of get the sense of those Jungians wanting to perhaps use this myth as really a key to understanding psyche, understanding psychology, understanding how to work with you know psyche and psychotherapy. We get that sense of of psyche being persuaded by her sisters. This is actually a very rich image in itself the the idea of these two sisters back when i did this podcast with alexandre called Tending the sunfire we did a few episodes on cinderella and we we're talking about those evil stepsisters as as aspects of the self those inner critics those critical voices that that tell you all of these kinds of things and generally strike up some kind of inner paranoia or or tell you why you can't do some things, or these these kinds of voices. So it's interesting how often it will show up in the stories. These two these two particular sisters. It's also interesting that there's two of them. It kind of makes you think that there's um, they have a power in numbers. You know, like uh, they're easier to listen to because they seem to at least agree with each other, and your opinion or or the self, the opinion of the self, which psyche might be representative of here. Is uh, is no match to these these more paranoid aspects of the self. So, yes, here we have the sisters of one. They have they figured out a way to make the whole thing crumble, to make the whole thing fall apart. These envious, bitter sisters that just they just can't take it. They don't want to see psyche happy. But also, in a way, there's this there's this element of of psyche's naivety, like. What kind of a story would it be if Psyche remained in this, in this state of mind and remained in this kind of bliss state where it's just her in paradise, where all she does is enjoy the splendid things of the day and enjoy the splendid things of the night and just goes round and round and round. As much as that sounds kind of ideal and, and, um, and an incredible thing to experience, I think actually after a while it might get a little bit dull a little bit tiresome. And so something has to happen. It's a, it's again a very ancient motif, the motif of paradise lost. Something happens, some kind of curiosity, some kind of thought comes in, something that's outside of the harmony of this perfect place. Uh, just think Garden of Eden or even think back to the story of Pandora. And we get a little bit of a Pandora in, in Psyche here too that she she sort of can't help herself. She's compelled to look. She's compelled to find out what is really going on here. It's also just an interesting thing to think of with, that Eros is shrouded in mystery. You know, you, you, you're never really able to see Eros. You're never really able to um, lay your eyes on him. And maybe that's something that's true of the nature of Eros and eroticism and life force, that uh, there is a certain amount of faith That we all have to have that that life force is there, and perhaps especially when when we get cut off as psyche now is, we get cut off from that from that erotic element of our nature. And by eroticism here, I don't mean I actually don't mean the way we use it currently. You know, uh, linked with sexuality. I mean it as a sense of like when we're cut off from our essential life force, our ability to really enjoy. It's one of those things of being human that we can be cut off from our bi- ability to really embrace and enjoy life and, um, and experience that life force and that flow um, within ourselves, especially when some kind of a trauma happens. So there you go. There's so much more that we could explore in part one. But I'll leave that for you for the dreaming and just to enjoy the story. And uh, hopefully everybody has gone on a little journey with me today. Thanks for listening all the way through. Part two will be coming, and and just to give you a little glimpse, uh, Psyche, you know, her next move is to actually throw herself into a river. She she just can't imagine life without Eros. She throws herself into a river, a, a form of sort of suicidality, but the river doesn't accept her body, doesn't accept her life, and washes her up on the shore. And on the shore is none other than the god, the great god Pan, the Goat God, and the exchange between Psyche and Pan is where we'll begin the next episode, and uh, that takes Psyche on a whole other journey, and that is all to come soon. So thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope everybody's having a good new moon, if you're listening today or if you're listening later, that you can remember back to this new moon in Pisces. More to come soon. And I look forward to seeing you again for part two of Psyche and Eros. Thank you for listening to On The Soul's Terms podcast. Find me online at onthesoulsterms.com or on Instagram at onthesoulsterms. The music behind me is from Malia Coeur. Find her on Spotify, Malia, C-O-E-U-R. I look forward to seeing you next time.